Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. I hope everybody is doing well. Today I have a conversation with Dr. Amitava Banerjee. Ami is an Associate Professor in Clinical Data Science at University College London and also a cardiologist at University College London and Bart's Hospital in London. And we discuss a couple of his recent publications all about the excess mortality uh, secondary to the COVID pandemic and how this can be estimated. We also discuss the difference between the direct effect of the disease and the indirect effects secondary to disruption of healthcare services. And we finish off by discussing how trainees and anybody who's interested can get more involved in data science and informatics. And I hope you enjoy the show. Please do leave a review on iTunes if you're so inclined and spread the word on social media. It really does help us out. Thank you very much indeed. So Dr. Banerjee, could I start by asking you to introduce yourself for the heart audience? What do you do and, and where do you work? My name's Ami Banerjee. I'm Associate Professor in Clinical Data Science at University College London. I um, am also an honorary consultant cardiologist at Barts and uh, University College London um, NHS Trusts. Uh, so I spend 30% of my time clinically uh, as, as a heart failure and general cardiology consultant and I spend 70% of my time academically between research and teaching and I'm particularly interested in uh, large-scale electronic health records, uh, research, digital health um, and uh, global cardiovascular disease research. And just for the record I'm going to state we don't normally do this but it's uh, June the 15th uh, 2020 so in the UK we are in the beginning phases I guess of easing the the lockdown um, in the middle of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And you've just published, along with uh, an esteemed list of co-authors, a, a paper that's just appeared in The Lancet uh, a couple of weeks ago, which is called Estimating Excess One-Year Mortality Associated with the COVID-19 Pandemic According to Underlying Conditions and Age, a population-based cohort study, Ami. Can you tell me a little bit about what motivated the study and what you were trying to achieve in that in that paper? Yes, uh, thanks, James. Uh, This came from uh, a patient that I saw in the the week before lockdown. Um, I can remember the date. Um, So 16th of March, there was an announcement of a list of conditions that put you at high risk of mortality from uh, COVID, which included cardiovascular disease and particularly mentioned heart failure. And the following day on the 17th, I saw Um, a gentleman in clinic who uh, commented that I'd always told him he was fitter than I was uh, and yet he (laughs) which is no great accolade but he but he uh, wondered why was he now being told to um, be paying particular attention to to social distancing why was he particularly at risk so I went home and like probably many in the country I was concerned myself as a as a member of the public, um, as a as a as a dad, as a husband, uh, as to why other countries were going into lockdown and we weren't, and so I thought maybe we have some data that could help this man's question about his personal risk, and we could try to use the fact that um, already we knew then that 
most of the deaths that were happening from COVID were in high risk conditions or in people who are over the age of 70. So, um, yeah, um, my my um, lockdown started for three, four days and I had a couple of uh, teams calls with with colleagues at the Institute of Health Informatics uh, and, and in particular, Harry Hemingway, Laura Passier and Spiros Danaxis. And within within 48 hours, we'd got another um, eight, nine colleagues involved from various disciplines. And by Sunday, we were in a position to submit um, something to the chief medical officer where we thought that uh, if if we didn't check the infection rate, we could end up in a situation with tens of thousands of excess deaths. So this was the first mm. study, we think, looking at excess deaths um, above and beyond what you'd expect from people's baseline comorbidities and, and, and previous data. Um, and, yeah, you know the rest. The following day, we went into into lockdown. Um, and uh, and then um, this this actually this paper was was re- released on preprint on the twenty second of March, but uh, was published in the Lancet on the twelfth of May, and had a different uh, relevance then. Uh, I think because, as you say, we just started easing lockdown, or the prime minister had made the announcement, and again, uh, the people who we know make up in any series 90 95 plus percent of the deaths from covid worldwide um have the least guidance about easing lockdown and so Mm. again there was interest in in um how we should be thinking about uh measuring risk before and after the covid pandemic and we also released a, a calculator uh a prototype really um but it's it's had wide uh, interest because um there's there's an appetite for that kind of personalized information to help inform our decisions and can you talk about the direct and indirect effects of the virus for those who are not as familiar as you are with the uh, with the science what do you mean by the indirect effects of the infection yeah um so so the direct effects are due to the infection with the virus itself. So uh, that's that's what people are measuring when they talk about the, the case fatality rate or the infection fatality rate that's widely reported in the media. So it's people who've had COVID infection. The indirect effect is due to changes in the health system or changes in behaviour which can be individual population or health system level and that tells you about the scale of this pandemic it it really is a a system level insult that you don't see with other infectious diseases Uh, clearly there's not a country that's not been affected but uh, you know indirect effects might be reduction in health services for particular diseases for example or it might be that i'm not turning up to the a and E department with my chest pain because I'm mm. worried about infection. Okay, so those those are the things you were seeking to do, Amy. And how did you go about trying to estimate this excess number of deaths uh, under different COVID infection scenarios? What did you actually set out to do? Sorry, what did you actually do to get the so answer to ha- that question? 
we have uh, electronic health records in the form of um, uh, CPRD clinical uh, practice research data link, which uh, we, we had from um, initially an existing ethical approval, and then we got uh, an accelerated ethical approval to do the work. But in the Lancet paper, we we looked at records from 3.8 million people, um, and and we looked at um, age-specific, sex-specific, and comorbidity-specific risk of dying in the next year from those health records. So that's your baseline. And then we took um, assumptions about the infection rates in the population. And now we have seroprevalence studies, but we didn't at that time. But people were estimating that we were at around about the, the 10% um, infection rate, somewhere between 1% and 10% even then. Uh, and, and so we made assumptions of um, 1, less than 1% infection rate of the population, 10, 40, 80. 80 seems implausible, but uh, um, you know, if, if the infection is allowed to go unchecked in a so-called herd immunity scenario, then that's what would happen. And then we also made assumptions about the relative impact of the pandemic, meaning how much more than baseline mortality risk does the pandemic affect um, mortality. So winter excess deaths is a relative risk of 1.2, 20% more than baseline. Um, and obviously this is much more than that. Um, and so we modelled um, scenarios of 1.5, 2 and 3. Okay, and, and what were your main findings? I mean, I know so it's, the, hard, it's hard to distill it all down into a few sentences. but So the key, the key finding was that at 10% infection rate unchecked, I, I should have said that we uh, were um, looking at deaths here over a year, okay. which is un unusual for this kind of study. Usually when people look at pandemics and infections, they're looking, as I said, at the case fatality rate. So they're looking at a shorter term mortality. Here, I think with the, the scale of the pandemic, that we, we need to look at direct and indirect effects over a longer time scale. So it fits with the data that we had. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we found that at 10% infection rate, uh, we, we could expect um, between 30 and 70,000 uh, excess deaths. And if the infection rate went higher, then you, you could easily get into the over 100,000 um, death scenario. And um, obviously this message, as you say, was, was then communicated uh, to the chief medical officer. Um, and uh, I, I guess we'll never know whether that impacted the uh, the swift introduction of lockdown a day or so afterwards um, so, so we, we we know it was taken into account I think from uh, from evidence afterwards and release of sage papers mm. and so on we know that there there were various studies that were pointing in this direction so I wouldn't say that this was the only study by a long way um, uh, since since um, February and early March, there had been other studies and definitely data from other countries that were showing that 
uh, infection rate at population level was the main lever here that causes excess deaths combined with with high risk and in terms of um, the the estimated deaths that you produced in, in your model under various infection rate scenarios how has that how have those numbers held up as real world data has started to emerge as you say seropositivity rates etc yeah um, sadly uh, it, it's been proven to be in the right ballpark uh, okay so you know we're on fifteenth uh, of June and we're at the last count, I believe we're at 41,000 and something deaths. Yeah. Uh, and the the real um, number may be um, between 55 and 60,000, depending on um, um, which, which data set you look at. And, and remember, we're looking over one year. So we, we can look at that absolute number of deaths. We can look at... Um, the Office of National Statistics, which has been doing heroic work uh, every week, um, publishing data both about deaths from COVID and non-COVID, breaking down by uh, ethnicity, socioeconomic status and so on. And, and that's in the public domain. So from there, you can calculate uh, the the relative risk of, say, for example, direct versus indirect effects. Um, and again, um, we, we we're we're not exact, but um, um, but we're again in the right ballpark. But um, we we we're trying to update our work uh, with with real time estimates as they as they come about, um, and and also you know data such as um, the Open Safely paper mm. um, led by Ben Goldacre and colleagues. Uh, uh, you know that type of analysis provides real um, real time estimates for COVID risk by disease population, which you can also use to update models like this. So we're working to do that. And you've also got another paper uh, on a preprint server, which I'll put a link uh, in the show notes, which is looking at the estimated mortality associated with people with uh, cardiovascular disease can you talk a little bit about that certainly um so so this paper came from two directions what one is that obviously i'm a, a cardiologist but the bigger reason is that uh, we we've been seeing both in our own practice but talking to colleagues in different countries uh, a, a drop um if not a, a total standstill to um, cardiology services. So, uh, with with a, a wide group of, of colleagues, we um, managed to get data from China, Italy, and England from hospitals uh, in 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 all these settings. Uh, and across the the period of the pandemic, we could look at um, a number of diseases. So we looked at heart failure, atrial fibrillation. Um, myocardial infarction and stroke and looked at um, metrics of referrals, metrics of diagnosis, and metrics of treatment and showed that the the rates of all of these and all the diseases in all settings dropped uh, significantly during the pandemic and sometimes to 100% um, uh, below normal activity and it's it's a 
a deep-seated, long-standing effect of you know, two or mm. three months in China, even after uh, the the lockdown was stopped. Uh, there was still not fully normal cardi- cardiovascular disease services activity. Uh, so, so um, we would expect the indirect effect of that to be, you know, not immediate. It would be, you know, months or a year mm. uh, later, potentially. It's not just the acute services. And we also looked at uh, the direct effects using the model that we just described in the Lancet paper to look in more detail at uh, the different subtypes of disease in in, um, in uh, cardio, cardiovascular disease so 16 different subtypes are you able to give some some headline results of the of the of the preprint paper in terms of different cardiovascular diseases and different excess mortality yeah. so, so um, we, again we looked at 10 percent um, infection rate mm. uh, and we estimated that uh, the direct impact so people getting covid infection who happen to have cardiovascular disease that could be in the 30 to 60000 um excess deaths um ballpark and the indirect effect so that is due to reduction in services for cardio- cardiovascular disease patients that could be more than that that could be in the um 50 to 100,000 excess deaths range. Uh, and so I think the the point is that um, both effects are important. Uh, the, the only way that we can uh, um, manage COVID is to keep the infection rate down at the moment, regardless of what else is happening in, in policy. The, the, if you look at countries in the world which have had less deaths, they've they've done uh, the, the the two things in terms of earlier lockdown and and testing and tracing, mm. uh, and that that has led to less deaths across the board, including in individuals with cardiovascular disease. So that's the the, the first lesson, which is unsurprising, and the and the second one is that um, if you have underlying cardiovascular disease then that is a risk factor for um covid but also it needs to be treated in its own own right because we know from studies like the global burden of disease study that this this is the the largest cause of morbidity and mortality uh, worldwide so um access to drugs um access to acute and chronic services uh for, for cardiovascular disease um need to be somehow um emphasized uh, throughout the pandemic yeah i was i was astonished reading that the preprint and obviously it's it's un, unpeer-reviewed as yet but but nevertheless um, seeing that the indirect effect may be twice as severe as the direct effects on mortality is uh, is astonishing and uh, is scary for sure and i think uh, as you say we were talking before that services are starting to to get back to some semblance of normality in the uk but to full normality, I just don't know when that's going to be uh, when that's going to be happening. Um, Amy, can I just uh, before we finish off, you are obviously a pioneer in in uh, this type of work, data science work as a cardiologist, and I guess a fairly rare breed. Um, although you did mention some esteemed colleagues who 
who are in the same field as you. How did you get into it yourself? And and would you have any suggestions for trainees, uh, people at the beginning of their careers who are interested in data science, um, about how they might get training uh, in this particular area of cardiology? So I, I definitely don't consider myself a, a pioneer, um, but but I I I think that um, I've, I've um, actually originally trained in epidemiology, and uh, that's um, very much related to, to data science, which you mentioned, and informatics. There's there's nuanced meanings of of all of these, but in in essence, they're all in, interested in looking at patterns in data re- related to health and healthcare. Uh, and so in the UK in particular, but in, in every country in the current context, there's there's um, data that is um, covering routine healthcare. Uh, in, in every training pathway, people have to do audits. Uh, and if you have good routine data in your hospital, um, and, and I'm talking about electronic health records, mm. then you can actually be a lot more ambitious with the type of audit that you're that you're doing and you know that I, I think the key is to uh, as in this instance that the best questions come from clinical or public health scenarios um uh, r- rather than necessarily hypothesis driven mm. uh, if, if you're a, if you're a um a, a clinician um scientist uh, and and um that's that's how we, we ended up with, with with this body of work and um I, I would encourage people to ask those questions use the data that's there and in, in the uk we've got the potential for linked data so whether it's hospital and primary care whether it's from our rich national registries such as the national heart failure registry or MINAP, which is about myocardial infarction and stenting and also, um, I mentioned the Office of National Statistics. So, just to give you an idea, uh, the the um, excess mortality risk that's being seen in um, relation to ethnicity uh, in in the context of COVID, there's all kinds of data that is being freed up from linkage to the census. So, linkage of census data to mortality data to data from ITU intensive care audit data which could tell you for example about whether overcrowding is a factor in this um, which we're never going to have a big enough prospective cohort to tell you about that Mm. so I think clinical questions and using the routine data that's there would be my advice. And then other websites or places you can go to to learn how to to manipulate that data, deal with the data, process the data. What do you yes. su- what do you suggest there? I I, th- I think that uh, in in the era of of YouTube and in the era of lockdown, um, the 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 standard and the breadth of resources that are available is. is Enormous. So some of that is via um, the the cardiovascular disease journals. Um, if you um, take the 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 common data analysis packages, most commonly the one I use is R. Mm. Uh, there's there are free online courses um, to do that, and there there are um, uh, 
websites uh, such as Coursera, where you can find more tailored offerings to what you want to learn. Um, so what I'm saying is you don't necessarily have to do what I did and do a, a master's in um, public health and epidemiology <laughs> to, to get started. Uh, and and um, actually, I would argue that you know, in order to get get things done, you just have to get get your hands dirty with data. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's what I've I've done. I've I've done a course at Coursera, and also um, our university. I think many universities around the world have also uh, seem to offer data science uh, and R and Python courses for for absolute beginners like me. Um, and I found it really fascinating to do. And uh, yeah, I'm uh, really grateful to you, Amy, for for coming on and telling us all about your work. Thank you, James. Thank you.